The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and today I will be joined by Steve Tramer, frequent guest on this show, because we're going to be talking about RPG narratives. Um, I kind of got this idea uh, for this show when I was playing Undertale, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's basically an adventure game with some RPG mechanics, but it relies pretty much entirely on its storytelling and a lot less on its systems, which got me thinking a lot about how we were going to talk about, how we talk about RPG narratives and how they like fit into the genre. So we're going to get really deep into that, like really, really deep. But first of all, Steve, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Welcome back. What have you been up to lately? Hey, it's super good to be back on the show. Um, Let's see here. What have I been doing lately? I've been... Playing a little bit of Bloodborne again, um, uh, because, yeah. well, I mean, uh, it'd been a few months since I finished it, and I was like, I should probably pick this up again, because I just feel like playing some Bloodborne, and maybe I'll check out the DLC, and then I kind of never got around to playing the DLC, because I got too into just playing through it all the way again. Um, it must be nice to have time to actually tackle your black backlog, or even play a game that you really like again. That's... I mean, I know this is first world problems and all, but it's just like, it's such a steady march forward for me that I almost never have time to look back. Yeah. So I've been doing a little bit of that. Um, I finally got around to doing Life is Strange as Mm. well. I don't know if you, did you get to play through that last year? I played through the first episode and I generally liked it, but not enough to really commit to it. Yeah, it's, it takes a lot of commitment and it's, you know, it's a story-based adventure game. It gets a lot better in the second and third episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd really be into, like, some of the stuff that it says about the experience of being a teenage girl and the mm-hmm. way that you interact with your friends and the men around you and stuff. It's just, it's super cool and fun. Uh, I would recommend it to anyone who enjoys an adventure game and hasn't played it yet. That's funny, because I'm watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now, and it says a lot about that, too. <laughs> yeah, it's it actually does have a little bit of a Buffy vibe to it and I think there's even mm. like some Buffy callbacks in there because it's it's got like a lot of weird pop culture stuff in it too which comes across as alternately totally out of place and authentic to how dumb teenagers sound sometimes <laughs> isn't she like isn't she like she's actually a teenager no she's like a first she's, year art student and she has like lots of stuff from like the 80s and 90s in her room i think yeah it's super weird like she's supposed to be 18 and has moved back to her hometown to to either finish up the last year of high school at an art academy or is her first year of college at an art academy the game isn't 100% clear on this she lives in a dorm, so yeah, it's like she, sleepaway she li- camp. Yeah, she lives in a dorm, and a lot of the game is about like your interactions with your dorm mates while you're trying to solve this mystery of a missing person. And it's it's cool and fun, and um, again, if you like adventure games, you should play it. People talked it to death last year, and it's not an RPG, so... Nope. nope. But <laughs> if there's anything we like to do on this show, it's to talk about games that aren't RPGs. Well, that's true. Uh, like Darkest Dungeon, which I have also been playing, and is... I'm like, I 
backed wait, it on. Wait a minute. Are you on the Darkest Dungeon is not a, an RPG train? Oh, no. I'm totally on the Darkest Dungeon is okay, an RPG train. Good. Uh, but when I backed it on Kickstarter, it was kind of like a last minute thing because so many of my friends were into it. And I was just like, fine, I'm probably going to play this anyway. I'll put in 20 bucks now and I'll play it when they reach 1.0. Um, which I'm actually really glad I did because this game was an enormous surprise to me. Hmm. Like I... Based on the initial pitch that they had, I kind of expected it to be a lot less moment-to-moment tactical decisions about the attacks you make and much more moment-to-moment tactical decisions about how you kind of how you manage the personalities of your characters. Um, I definitely wasn't expecting it to be like what amounts to a hardcore turn-based tactical RPG. And it's awesome, isn't it? It's very good. I've played, I don't even know how many hours of it at this point. I'm like in the mid-game stretch where you've got your level three and level four characters and you're trying to go through those mid-tier bosses and dungeons. And it is like, I made it all the way through the first tier without ever having to dismiss a character or running out of money or having anyone die even. That's impressive. Yeah. And then I reached that mid-game and... I got... Let me guess, you had no money. Yeah, I ran out of money really fast after I had, like, two or three party wipes in a row. Um, (laughs) Some of the bosses are really unfair. Like, I know that they're Mm. basically the same bosses as the areas before. They just have more HP and stuff. Um, Like, the Swine King and the Hag, especially, are are really unfair, because I did a... um, On the first turn against Swine King, I took out his little piggy buddy with my first attack. Uh, and then I found out very quickly, you are not supposed to do that because my party was wiped out in the next two turns. Yep, there you go, because you pissed off the Swine King. Yep, I pissed off the Swine King, and I lost all of my best guys with fully upgraded equipment and fully upgraded skills. You know what's really great? Is when one of your characters gets put into the pot, the hag's pot, yep. and then comes right out with like no health, and they're at death's door, and then immediately gets killed. Yeah, I actually, the thing I think I like most about the game is actually the Death's Door mechanic. Hmm. Both because it's, both because it's a reprieve where, oh no, I took a shitload of damage because you're gonna take shitloads of damage all the time. And healing skills in that game are not very good. <laughs> um, right. So you take a crap load of damage and then if you're lucky, you survive through like the next two or three attacks. But also it really plays up the stress and tension of the game. Like, I think that that's the best, the, the best moment at which it really taps into, like, the idea of these are adventurers that are going into a crazy, horrible place and they're all going to go nuts because of it. That's the, that's the one moment in the game where I think that that really comes across super well and you as the player feel that level of tension. Yeah. Because they're down to death's door. Your entire party's stress goes through the roof. Yep. Your own heartbeat's, like, really high because you're like, oh, God, I might lose this character. And at that point, you're praying that they don't get just knocked out. And uh, you got that stupid narrator talking in your ear about, like, how horrible everything oh, is. Oh, my God. During the conversation that we're going to have a little bit later in the meat of the podcast, I'm going to have some things to say about that narrator. <laughs> All right, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. And of course, this is literally the third podcast in a row in which we've discussed Darkest Dungeon, which is an awesome game, I should mention. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that if you are, if you like 
Shin Megami Tensei games, like, and you enjoy the battle systems and tactical elements of them, like, Darkest Dungeon really taps into that. Uh, status effects and buffs and debuffs are just as critical as dealing raw damage. And in a lot of situations, they're more critical than dealing raw damage. So it really, it taps into, like, that part of your brain where you go through kind of these encounters that you become familiar with and get strategies for, but even if you do everything exactly right, you can still fuck it up. I was going to say that um, if you want even more Darkest Dungeon discussion, you should go back a couple of episodes and listen to my in-depth interview with Tyler Sigmund, who is the director slash designer of Darkest Dungeon, and we have lots of interesting things to say about his design. Yep. But before we continue into the narrative, I, we got some RPG news. Big news. <laughs> big news, potentially. Uh, there are rumors swirling around that Mother 3 might actually get an official localization via Nintendo of Europe. Steve, uh, you seem to have some thoughts on this. Uh, Do you think this is actually going to happen? Oh, God, I hope so. I really, really hope so. Um, they've been... Like, Nintendo of Europe has been teasing this in super oblique ways on Twitter and game sites and stuff for, like, the last couple of weeks, it sounds like. Like, I started hearing the rumors that Mother 3 on Wii U Virtual Console was going to be a real thing, like, kind of starting around the beginning of this month. Um, and then over the last couple of days, it's sort of reached a fever pitch to the point where anonymous sources have said to Eurogamer, yes, this is a real thing that's happening, and it's going to come out on the Wii U Virtual Console for the game's 10th anniversary. Ooh. Which is, one, it's completely bonkers to think that this game is 10 years old at this point, right? Like, people yeah. still talk about it and revere it, um, those who've gotten a chance to play it. And then there was that whole thing Look, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating Mother 3. Please don't think that. Mm -hmm. I just think that when you don't get a game, like when Americans actually don't get a game and it becomes like this thing that's only in Japan and only those who have sought out like the fan sub or have played the original version in Japanese have played it. It becomes like this holy grail, right? And the yeah. hype just builds and builds and builds and builds. Yeah, we can call it uh, the Seiken Densetsu 3 effect. Which yes. Is, which is a game that's perfectly solid, but it's not like one of the greatest games of all time. No, that said, there are plenty of people who... I, I've heard people say that they think Mother 3 is better than the original Earthbound. I've heard that from a lot of people as well, and I've heard that from people whose opinions about this kind of stuff that I really trust. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've had the fan translation from Tomato that's been out for like three, four, five years at this point. Yeah, a friend of mine ended up buying that um, and the really amazing strategy guide that they put out. Yeah, that... The work that they put into that is really incredible, and although I never played it myself, like, I was always super impressed with what they did. Like, Mother 3 is one of those games that's sort of been eternally on my backlog, because there's not there's no legal way to obtain that translation, like, just straight up, which means that it's not something sitting there in my Steam library when I sit down to play a game. And it's much easier to just kind of look through that backlog of 50 or 60 Steam games that I need to play instead of thinking, oh, yeah, Mother 3 is a thing that exists. So I knew somebody who had access to a GBA card creator. Oh, yeah. They put the ROM, the Mother 3 translated ROM on the cart. Yeah, I've known several people who've done that, and they all said that that's the way to play it because it's 
because also when that translation came out, like it was still when emulators had like input lag and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's a game where the battle system is based on syncing rhythm to the music, like it, the timing inputs are actually super important. Mm. So yeah, I heard from a bunch of people that the, the only way they wanted to play that game was on physical hardware, which is another reason why I've kind of been waiting. Well, I mean, I talked to a Treehouse representative like six years ago, and I was like, why isn't there a Mother 3 translation? And they were like, you know what? We just missed the window, and uh, it happens. It ended up passing, and after that, we just had no real way to release it. Yeah. This is 2009, of course, when Nintendo did not do... They barely did digital uh, downloads. Like, it was only for virtual console on the Wii. Right. And the GBA was long gone. Like, we were in the heart of the DS era. And so it just seemed like there was just no way that uh, Mother 3 would ever come out here. And then now fast forward six years. Uh, thank God we have GBA emulation on the Wii U. I And originally, I kind of wrote it off because I was like, oh, come on. First of all, like the GBA had some good games, but not enough that like I'm going to be super pumped for a virtual console, uh, a GBA virtual console. Uh-huh. And I already own most of those games anyway, because I kept them all from when I owned a GBA back in the day. But I underestimated first how many good games there are on that system, like getting Metroid Zero Mission and Metroid Fusion and like various other really good games on Virtual console has kind of made me reassess my opinion of that, uh, little handheld. And then to be able to get, now it's an avenue for Mother 3 to actually come out in the West with an official localization. I mean, that validates everything about that program right there. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so to the treehouse point, it sounds like this is going to be coming out of Nintendo of Europe. And there's, there's sort of an open question at this point about whether or not they licensed that tomato fan translation or not as a kind of a jumping off point like i don't think anyone knows right now and we may never know for sure but yeah there's a lot of really good stuff for the gba and it also sounds like the earthbound zero thing where they released that uh mostly complete uh mother Mm -hmm. for the nintendo translation on virtual console was like actually a big business success for them so if they had the op- the means and opportunity to do this, why wouldn't they do it? There's a huge market of people who own a Wii U that would love to play this. Because localization costs a lot of money. The, yes, that is the flip side of it. Localization costs a lot of money, which is, again, why there's there are those sort of persistent whispers that this is based off of that existing work already. Because it would be cheaper than doing it all in-house. Yeah, but licensing that localization just doesn't seem to be Nintendo's MO. Yeah, which is really what gives me pause about it being true. Like, Nintendo just doesn't do that. I say this with all due respect to Exceed. Uh, They're the kind of publisher that would license a fan translation, and they have, because they're a small outfit, and they're like, well, this person's already doing all this work, so we might as well bring them in-house to some extent, right? Right. Uh, Nintendo is not like that. Nintendo is extremely protective of their work. 
And they're going to, and I, I just don't think that they would trust a fan translation, which is why I think that they haven't done it already. Yeah, that's part of it. And then, so my understanding of the tomato translation as well is that it actually was done by professional localizers, like in their off hours, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's something to consider, but at the same time, you're also totally right. Like there's a reason why Nintendo has their entire in-house localization team as a subdivision of their company and there's a reason why everyone knows the name of that and they're like relatively prominent it's because nintendo wants to control all that stuff like in-house 100 percent. yes in any case uh where there's smoke there's fire and i'm gonna go on a limb and say that we will get an official confirmation at e3 I would like to believe that it would be sooner, but... Or Nintendo Direct. Yeah, I'm going to say probably Nintendo Direct. Does Nintendo even really do E3 anymore? I thought that they... I mean, no, but last year they did their, like, Nintendo World Championship again. Uh, Yeah, that's true. And they had a couple of announcements there, and they used that as a venue for some announcements, and one of them was the Mother Zero announcement. So, I don't know if they're doing another Nintendo World Championship, but... I wouldn't be shocked if they did another event in that style because Nintendo World Championship was really successful and fun. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed watching Nintendo World Championship when I got around to it. Like that Mario Maker Mm. like stuff at the very end was really good. Exactly. So Mother 3 hopefully coming out soon, finally, so that we can all play it. In the meantime, you should go pick up the original Earthbound uh, from the SNES on your Wii U because that is also available and obviously if you're going to play Mother 3 you should totally play Earthbound. Yeah, I I will say for anyone picking up Earthbound like today in the year of Our Lord 2016 it can be a little hard to get into and the opening of the game like the first two or three hours is some of the least friendly part of it. <laughs> so it you might have to it's a, it's a bit of a struggle to get through that. Like, it took me two or three tries to really get into Earthbound to make it through, but I will say that if you enjoy RPGs, especially if you enjoy Dragon Quest-style RPGs, or if you enjoyed Undertale, or if you enjoyed, like, really well-localized games, then Underbound is... Er, <laughs> Underbound? <laughs> Underbound. Uh, Earthbound is totally worth your time. I made, a, I made a joke to a friend that Nintendo should rebrand Mother 3 as Undertale 2. To give you an idea of where that tongue slip up came from. Oh, yeah. All right. And on that note, let's continue to our main discussion. All right. So narrative and RPGs. Um, I went through the trouble of like actually typing up show notes for this one, um, which is something that I rarely do. I like having a free-flowing conversation. So let's kind of start at the beginning, Steve. Um, I, I think that most people would know um, in terms of RPG history, where did RPGs get their start? They got their start as, uh, well, Dungeons and Dragons, um, yeah. tabletop games. And the purpose of tabletop games originally was to be able to tell stories, but to have some kind of rules attached to them. So that you couldn't just do whatever you wanted in these stories. Yeah, well, some of the earliest ones, like very first edition Dungeons & Dragons, was actually way more about the dungeon crawl element. 
and what people got into was the storytelling. And so like second edition focused more on that. And then later tabletop RPGs have focused more and more and more on the story stuff. Um, to the point where today, if you play a tabletop game, there's like an entire massive subgenre that's story games or considered to be story games, which are really mechanics light. Um, yes, and hardcore tabletop players look down their nose at these uh, yeah. kinds of games. Yeah, like, I mean, um, D&D 4E was partially a response to this popularity of stuff like um, Apocalypse Games, powered by the Apocalypse Games. But White you know, Wolf Games. Was oh, that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah, White Wolf. Um, Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire all that. Vampire the Masquerade and uh, the Werewolf game, which I think is just called White Wolf. Like, that's the stuff that... That's the stuff that really became a LARP community is kind of yeah. what those turned into. <laughs> the games where, like, if you tell your story well enough, you can get bonuses to your roles. Oh, yeah. There's actually a lot of mechanics like that in more modern games where if mm. you... There's one specific one that I wish I could remember the name of. Um, I think it's called... Oh, no, Police Cops is what it's called. Where if you, based on, you know, you choose kind of your action and then you describe how you do it. And if you describe it awesomely enough, you get like extra dice to roll for it. Yes, exactly. I've played in art games like that. Yeah. But many of the earliest tabletop games... Uh, were played by some of the first generation of game developers. And these were game developers who were making games for those big college mainframes. And they went on to make games like Rogue. And they kind of based uh, their story, uh, they based their games on two things, their Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. Yep. And then also Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then also there's kind of the um, text adventure offshoot there, which is like where a lot of the story stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. Like adventure and colossal cave and stuff. Those have sort of the same ancestry as like Rogue and NetHack and all those things. But those were focused on the story stuff instead of the mechanical stuff. But meanwhile, like a game like Rogue, like it was so basic uh, and it was so random because like the, the main appeal of Rogue was that it was a randomly generated game, right? Yeah. Which meant that it wasn't solvable like Colossal Cave Adventure. Yeah. So it like stripped away the storytelling and the systems became an avenue for telling a story. Every run that you took became its own story. Well, so this is actually where I think that it would it would be a good idea to get some terminology down, which is like a story mm. is when we talk about a game's story, what we're talking about is, you know, like that, that log line summary, like rogue, the story is you go down to the 26th floor to get the amulet of Yendor and you return. And yes. then there's, there's the plot, which is the expression of the story. You've got like your beats of the story. You go through the act structure, whatever. Mm. And then there's, the narrative, which is the way that the plot is actually expressed in the medium. And for games, that's really unique and interesting because a lot of the time, that's those are the mechanics, right? Like in the best situations, the narrative and the mechanics line up perfectly. For most RPGs, the narrative is expressed almost entirely through, I talk to these NPCs and I get plot points. But then there's stuff like Rogue and Darkest Dungeon, where the narrative is essentially... I took these actions in the in the game and then this crazy thing happened. There's another meta component to storytelling as well, where 
you would be telling your friend a story about your run through Rogue. And you would say things like, yeah. And then or say, let's say you're talking about, was it Moria? Yeah. And the Balrog is in there. It's like, oh yeah, like I ran into the Balrog and like I was so sure that I was going to die, but I totally figured out that I could get him through the wall. And it was like a super tense situation. Like you're going like really in depth talking about this, like what happened to you, like you know, this specific event. And that goes even a little further than just the log of, uh, your adventurer killed the Balrog and returned with the treasure. Right. Like, that is your particular narrative. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about, the expression of mechanics as narrative, is that your the story of the game is, you know, it's always going to be the same. I go through a bunch of monsters to get to the end point and collect the item or whatever. Like, at least in, in those very early roguelikes. And... The, but it's the the way that you actually tell that story is all told entirely through the mechanics. And I mean, whether you're telling that story um, through actually playing the game or you're relating those events to a friend later, like you were essentially describing them in exactly the same way, right? Well, in the 1980s, uh, RPGs started to get more complex. And this is when the Japanese came into it. And I apologize for grossly simplifying... Uh, the RPG scene of the 1980s, because obviously there are a lot of amazing PC RPGs and dungeon crawlers that came out at this time. Um, the SSI Gold Box games come to mind, for example. Uh, but the Japanese joined in with Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, and the latter is kind of notable for kind of setting out to tell this complex story. Like, and initially it looks like just your typical going to save the princess kind of run. And then by the end, you've got chaos and you've got airships and you've got like time travel and all of these different things. And that really set the stage for the 90s where RPGs became more and more ambitious in their storytelling, uh, both in the East and the West. Um, in the East, you had Final Fantasy IV, which was... It was a story, like it was there to tell a story. It, it had a really ambitious narrative for the time. And in the West, you have Black Owl Studios and those kinds of companies coming out with games like, correct me if I'm wrong, Fallout came from Black Isle, right? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that yeah. Fallout came from Black Isle. They, and they your have... isometric RPGs like, um, Planescape Torment? Yeah, Planescape, which was also from, I think it was from Black Isle as well. You had Bioware coming onto the scene with Baldur's Gate, not coincidentally based on the Dungeons and Dragons license. And so RPGs made great, great strides in the 90s and really just started to stretch out. And one of the things that kind of really separated the, the genre from other types of games in that time was you would have adventure games that told stories. You'd have visual novels in Japan, though not here. But RPGs were the storytelling genre, right? They're the ones where you're going to get like an actual complex narrative as opposed to, say, a platformer or a shooter or something else uh, like that, right? These were yeah. games that were based on storytelling, and that's why you gravitated toward them. Yeah, and it's not just that they were based on storytelling. It's that like they were they were in most cases like at least for the PC games it was that non-static storytelling where you felt like you had different choices that you really were getting into that tabletop 
aspect of I am playing my character. Um, like, especially in the early Fallout stuff, like, the, one of the things that people love to talk about in the early Fallout game is that you can talk the final boss into committing suicide, and that's how you win. <laughs> one of my favorite things ever, by the way. Yeah, that's great. Like, that's, it's really hard to get to that point with that type of character builds, which makes it even more satisfying that you can do that at the very end. Um, and then, you know, like on consoles, yeah, you didn't even really have adventure games. If you wanted a story, you were picking up an RPG. It technically says Fallout came out from Interplay. Oh, that's right. It was Interplay, but it was, I think it was developed by the group that would eventually become Black Isle because they, Mm. they did Fallout 2, I think was the first officially, officially branded as a Black Isle game. Mm Mm-hmm. Trying to remember. It, mm. I thought Black Isle was kind of a late '90s thing. Yeah, it might have been. Like the that early history of PC gaming gets a little muddled because it's a lot of the same people making a lot of the same games or in the same series, but they've like moved around between companies a bunch or started their own studios or whatever. And it's not my area of expertise, so my apologies for if I got any of that crap wrong. Well, I mean, RPGs are a gigantic landscape, which is how I've been able to do a weekly podcast about it for (laughs) most of the time for like six years now. Yeah, five or six years at this point, I think. There's just so much to talk about. But as RPGs have become more complex, having control over the story has become kind of a genre staple, especially in the West. Maybe not as much in the East, though. uh, It can happen. There's some of the stuff in the East, like the biggest places you see that self-expression kind of stuff is um, like in the Shin Megami Tensei games. And even then it's pretty limited. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, Final Fantasy has always been like these wild, fantastic, huge narrative, static narratives. And Dragon Quest has always been kind of the more muted version of that that's focused a little bit more on the mechanics stuff. And then, I mean, in the West, like, yeah, it's been... Bioware and Bethesda that have kind of set the gold standard for what those games look like these days. Yeah, and as uh, games have evolved, storytelling has become more of a staple of games as a whole. So you're going to see a story in your average AAA shooter now, well, something that resembles a story. Usually, it's a you know a blockbuster. It's basically just a summer movie ha- rehash or a, a rehash of 24, but whatever. It's a story. It's yeah. in there. It's it provides justification theoretically provides justification for the actions you're taking you're doing in the game. Yes, right? you have grabbed a gun. You are fighting some aliens. Here's why. All right, go. Okay, you yeah. have your context. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but what separates the RPG from your average AAA shooter is the a customization of your character, like the the ability to define who your character is, and b having some control over the narrative. Yeah. So, um, at the same time, though, there are plenty of RPGs that either eschew narrative completely or allow it to develop organically. And that is where we get our darkest dungeons. That's where we get a lot of our indie roguelikes. The games that go back to the very beginnings of the genre and say, you know what? We don't really need a story. Uh, we think that, or here, just have some systems. And yeah. then you kind of create your own story in your head. So I think that Darkest Dungeon is a really interesting example of this because it has like that opening intro cinematic, which is awesome, by the way. Like I love that intro cinematic. It sets the 
tone and story of the game perfectly. And then uh, but it's, I would just like to piggyback on that and say yeah. that when you're going into a boss dungeon oh, and yeah. it gives you like some context for who the boss is and like how that boss came to be. Like it does so much to set the 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 setting and the mood and everything, and like it really gives you a feel for who the narrator is and what the heck was going on. Yeah, it's like that stuff in Darkest Dungeon is really great. Um, and then throughout the while you're playing the game, the narrator has like these little barks where it tells you about, oh man, you landed a critical hit, so. I forget what the line there is, but then an enemy critical hits you, and it's a oh, powerful blow. Quickly, yeah, powerful blow. See how quickly the tide turns, and like it's got this really canned set of responses. Where for the first few hours you're playing that game, it's totally awesome, and you get really into it, and then you just want to turn them off after that because you've heard them so often. Oh come on, I like them. Uh, I like them, but they are so goofy. Nah, come on, games like these are over the top. It, and that's kind of, I can kind of get into the over the topness of it, but when I'm sitting on the couch playing Darkest Dungeon, my girlfriend is watching me and all she can talk about is how dumb and over the top it is. <laughs> that's a pretty good incentive to turn that stuff off. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about the types of storytelling in RPGs and... Uh, feel free to like chime in with your own thoughts on this. This is kind of me dashing off some like ideas that I had off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I can go even a little deeper than that. But so there's the Final Fantasy approach, which yep. is traditional turn-based JRPG with fixed characters and narrative. You are playing through the story. You don't have a ton of agency over what your characters are doing. Um, but it's a turn-based game with some systems and you're just kind of getting immersed into the story. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, this is the most straightforward one, and this is what... This is the Dragon Quest approach? Yeah, this is what we as kids who grew up with consoles think of as an RPG, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, so wildly different from what kids who grew up with a PC think of as an RPG. And it's, like, kind of I started off with in the introduction, we're talking about um, narrative as an expression of mechanics, like... This is where the narrative is expressed essentially only through the mechanic of I talk to a person and I get a text box or it goes into a cutscene or whatever, um, which is fine. And it's a nice and I don't think it's a coincidence that these games tend to have the weakest overall stories, but often the most interesting characters because they have to put a lot of time into writing these characters to make them cool and interesting enough to spend 60 hours with. Yes, and it seems to be the games that people become the most engaged with. I don't think it's a surprise that JRPG fans tend to be the most vocal in their loyalties toward JRPGs because they really become... They really come to love these characters, right? That they've spent so much time with, and it really sticks in their memories in a way that maybe the more malleable characters of other RPGs kind of don't. Right. And because, again, it's that all that static stuff, right? Like, it is an authored experience where you kind of get into the empathy of getting to know these characters and coming to relate to them, as opposed to this character is just an expression of what I want to do in the world. So continuing on, we have the Fallout approach, which I, I'm just using Fallout as shorthand for, you know those kind of open-world RPGs of the Bethesda style. Mix of linear and freeform narrative. You can change the world on a micro and macro level, but there's a fixed story still. Um, for example, uh, 
Skyrim, where you're, you have your story quests, you have to make a decision ultimately, but you can take on lots of side quests that, where you change people's destinies and possibly end up changing the makeup of the world. Uh, you create your own character and you give them an identity, uh, but their story is played out mostly through your actions. Like maybe there'll be a character with a special destiny or like special powers or whatever, but otherwise they're an empty vessel that you basically fill. Yeah. Um, I think that these are also the kind of games that are the hardest to get right because it's that weird disconnect that sometimes you see in like a Skyrim or a Fallout where, oh man, I just, I'm totally playing a character where I just want to kill all these guys. And then you come up against the guy you can't kill because they're part of the critical path. Yeah. And it gets, it gets really weird and aggravating at that point. Um, that's what always bugged me about Skyrim. Yeah, and was that I wanted to go in and kill the king of the Nords, and I couldn't because he was invincible. Right. He, well, he's invincible until the story says that he's not. Yeah. More to the point. So yeah, these are the ones that are the most delicate balancing acts because you obviously can't account for everything a player would want to do, and you still want to have that authored experience in there, but you want to make it as open as possible. And it's like, there's a reason why these games are huge and take forever for companies to make and when they do get released they have so many seeming weird problems in them it's because you just can't account for everything that a player would want to do but yeah it's also when you think about how people talk about these games like they talk about their experience in fallout or skyrim or whatever they're talking about their experience they're not normally talking about oh man, in the main quest when X happened, it was so cool. What they're talking about is, oh man, in the main quest, I had to fight a dragon, and then I did these things, and it was totally crazy. Yeah, but at the same time, people are like, oh man, I really love this one side quest. Right, it's, yeah, and I think that, that kind of, that's the other side of it, right? Like, when I talk to people about those games, normally what comes up is... Yeah, I had a really good time doing, like, with this experience as part of a set piece or as part of this one dungeon or whatever, but did you play this particular quest line? Because the writing in it is so good. Yes, exactly. All right, continuing on to... Uh, uh, this might be splitting hairs a bit, but I would say there's also the Bioware approach, which is a strain of the Fallout approach. Linear narrative, but with lots of choices and how it unfolds. Um see Mass Effect where you're making like you're playing a linear story but you have certain points where you make a big decision and that changes the course of the story to some extent or at least it changes the development of your character and then you have a customized character but they have more of an arc like the character in Mass Effect like Shepard like they are a character but you, but they aren't an empty vessel. They actually have like a background and they kind of have a personality and they have a job and you come in and you give shape to the rest of the character. Yeah. Those are the ones where I think that those are the kind of games where you get less of those personal player stories too. Like I don't really hear anyone talking about their personal stories from Mass Effect other than like I or any Bioware game other than I romanced this particular person or here's how I responded to a specific question. And it's, there's a lot less, because there's less player expression, I think it turns out more like 
a fully authored JRPG kind of experience, but it is that that slight level of variation that kind of at least gives each person their own unique experience. Like, I mean, realistically, you're going to have so many people who end up playing the same game, but everyone still kind of feels like it was their character, like their shepherd that they played through the game as. Yeah, no, exactly. I was playing when, whenever I would see a story about somebody else playing Mass Effect, I would look at the screenshots and be like, who the heck is that shepherd? <laughs> yeah, my favorite is always that people, people who get really confused when it's like, shepherd's a dude? No, shepherd's, shepherd is totally not a dude. Well, not <laughs> only that, but like, my shepherd had an arc. Right. Like, initially she was, well, pardon my language, she was a bitch. <laughs> she totally killed the, the bug aliens. And she was like totally pro-human mm-hmm. and allowed like the, the alien console and everything to die at the end of the first game. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Um, but then as the game progressed or like as the story progressed through Mass Effect 2, she softened a lot and she, and she became, um, a lot more on the side of light. I guess you could say not the side of light, but she, a lot more progressive in her attitudes toward mm-hmm. other species and that kind of thing, mostly because she was spending so much time with aliens and because she was, her like lover was Liara Tassoni and all that stuff. And so like that arc was playing out in my head and that was how that was influencing my choices with her. So that to me was like real role playing. Yeah, so the, you bring up something interesting there, which is the transition that your character had between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2. And this sort of approach, the Bioware kind of approach, where it's an authored experience, but you're making choices, like that works super well for episodic games. And I don't think it's a coincidence that adventure games, like a, a, episodic adventure games like Telltale and Life is Strange and stuff, they're also really focused on this sort of expression now, right? Where it's more light on mechanics and it's not really an RPG, but it's still focused on making these moment to moment big decisions that affect the story. The thing that made me sad though was that Mass Effect Mass Effect systems did not support my arc. Like I made these decisions and I always thought to myself, well she killed the bugs, but she really regretted that. Like, she felt terrible about that. Like, in the years afterward, like, she just deeply regretted doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the game is basically, the game punishes you, if I recall correctly, in Mass Effect 3 for doing Renegade. Like, it wants you to be on the other side. And right. it will, like, greatly punish you for your Renegade choices. And I always, I, I didn't like that it was so skewed toward Paragon. Yeah, that is one of those things about those games is that eventually one side or the other, because there's... There's no nuance, there's no room for nuance when you have a game with a light and dark meter. Yeah, and that's a thing people have talked about with like karma systems and stuff a whole bunch in the past is that the story expression of those things and the mechanics expression of those things like don't ever line up particularly well, and also the game is either subtly or not so subtly always nudging you to make the quote-unquote right choice instead of role-playing. Like, um, I mean, people have come to understand that Bioshock is like the big offender here, right? Like, there's a serious mechanical and gameplay advantage to saving the Little Sisters, because that is the right thing to do. 
even if it's not the thing that you think you would do in that game. And I know it's not an RPG, but that's like the most, that's the easiest example to think of, of like, here is a binary moil choice and you can do whichever one you want, but we would really like it if you did this one. That's like high level design though. Like getting that stuff right. Like if you can actually get that stuff right, congratulations. Like you've now created one of the best games ever. Yeah, I know. We've talked about, I think we talked about this a little bit during lore, maybe during a lore episode, maybe, but it's like, if you're a writer and you're writing a video game of the scope and breadth of Mass Effect 3, like it, or just the Mass Effect series, at some point you're going to run out of steam or you're going to reach a point where you're like, I don't really care about what all these decisions have led to, or it gets handed off to another writer who has a different idea about what it looks like, or and you end up with kind of a weaker story like in one segment than the others just because of the realities of what it is like to be a writer or a team of writers putting all of that stuff together. And all those decisions compound and go in so many different directions. Uh, like, I was really invested in like the choices that I made in the first game um, and how they carried over to the second game. Uh-huh. And so were a lot of people. Um, that's one of the reasons I liked Mass Effect 2 so much was because I was like, oh man, like the choices I made, like carried over in meaningful ways to the second game. And so when I got together with Liara, um, to go on the, the, the one where I'm fighting the, the one guy, like it's the DLC episode. Uh, I, like, I felt like we had meaningful history and it played out beautifully in the dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then Mass Effect 3 came along and there was so much expectation for all the decisions that you made throughout the game paying off in some way that people were naturally disappointed when they didn't. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, it's that's part of the double-edged sword, right? Like, you want all of your choices to matter in a game with that sort of narrative construction, but realistically, sometimes your choices just don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, people... Like, if you save the bug aliens, I think you see a bug alien in Mass Effect 2, and they're like, oh, you saved me! Yay! But, uh, like, in Mass Effect 3, like, I don't even think that matters, right? Yeah. Like, if you save the bug aliens, so what? <laughs> and people are like, oh, man, I saved the bug aliens. I'm expecting to have an army of bug aliens on my back. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, no, it, I, I'm impressed that BioWare actually finished the three games. <laughs> And, like, did it in a way that, like, I mean, it wasn't all bad. Yeah. No, I mean, even with the huge outrage over the Mass Effect 3. And and so, yeah, this is, like, kind of a related point, right? Like, the original fur over the Mass Effect 3 ending, Mm -hmm. it's because players felt that they had ownership over that story because the story was crafted through their choices. And then at the end, they get the ending that they don't want as the outcome of those choices or they feel like those choices didn't matter going into the ending they got then yeah you know right or wrong they're going to feel frustration over it so that's that's like one of the biggest problems of putting together a story like that is that if you're doing it long form over those three games that span however many tens of hours you put in if you're a player that's devoted that level of your time and energy to it, then you're probably going to feel a little entitled to getting the payoff you want, right? It's just exactly. that it won't always be that way. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see the direction that they take with Mass Effect Andromeda when it comes out later this year, assuming it does. Yeah, I'm interested in that as well. Like I've mentioned before on this podcast that I've never played through any of the Mass Effect games beyond a little bit of the beginning of the first one, but I am... Ah, I totally spoiled you. I'm sorry. Whatever. I'm probably... I've got so (laughs) much to do. I'm probably never going to play all the way through the first one, and and we can talk about spoilers a little bit later if you want, but I've got some ideas on those. Mm. Um, But yeah, I'm interested in seeing Andromeda. I'm interested in seeing the other stuff that they're going to try and do with the Mass Effect universe, because it's... God, I hate this term, but it's like, it's probably their most interesting intellectual property. Like, I love the Dragon Age stuff, but to me, the Game of Thrones fantasy level kind of crap, it just doesn't appeal to me. Science fiction is way more my jam. Not only that, but I I don't want to get too much more sidetracked by talking about Bioware all the time, but Dragon Age's singular problem is it has no identity. Like, they came up with this, like, freaking 10,000 year lore. (laughs) <laughs> and they so nakedly crafted it as, like, basically a Song of Ice and Fire alike, or, sorry, Game of Thrones alike, for those who watch the TV show. Like, they just so transparently based it on that kind of world yeah. and that kind of aesthetic. Yeah. And this, with some Lord of the Rings on top of it. Yeah. And then, and then, like, they've kind of evolved it, but not really. And it's just this hodgepodge of, literary and film and television uh, fantasy tropes that it's like, uh, yeah, I don't, okay, none of this is particularly interesting to me. Literally the most interesting thing I think about Dragon Age, uh, I think the the monsters that live, um, that, God, I forget what they're called, uh, the ones that live in the caves, they're mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Uh the ones who come out in the big waves, kind of like the orcs. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't remember what those are called. And also uh, the Orlesians. They're fun because they're French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, listener, would like to know more about our complaints about Dragon Age, you can listen <laughs> to the podcast where Kat and I talked about lore. <laughs> yeah, but I like Dragon Age Inquisition more than most people. Inquisition is the best one. All right, anyway, continuing. So we've we said the Final Fantasy approach, the Fallout approach, the Bioware approach. There's the MMORPG approach. Where you create a, again, an empty vessel of a character and you undertake raids. Yeah. But the thing is, is that you are creating your own story there. There is a story, usually, like that plays out through the quests that you're playing through. But you are also creating your own niche in the game by, say, joining a guild, building player housing, deciding what class that you end up taking, uh you know, what order of the quests that you want to do, like on and on and on. And by the end, like the game's story doesn't even really matter so much as your own personal history with the game. Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting because it's like, it's kind of the JRPG approach, except it branches out from a billion different points. And then it also merges with the very real life practicality stuff of I am playing a video game with other people and some of these other people are my friends, and we have stories together about the time we did that raid. You know, as I'm, as we're talking about this, by the way, I'm realizing that talking about story in MMORPGs and the story in like Bioware type games, like with the episodic games, that could be two separate podcasts. I just realized what a big, like, how big of a topic this is. This is a, I mean, this is a huge topic. I knew it was going to be huge going into it, but. Yeah, you're you're right. Like there's there is a whole lot of ground there to be mined in 
how those stories relate to the way that players communicate with each other and how they approach those games and the way that they interact with developers even like the whole mass effect three for really i think is fascinating in so many ways and yeah, yeah. so uh, for the for the sake of time because like we're approaching the hour mark already whoa yep uh, maybe we should like continue on to kind of the tools for te- telling a story in RPGs and maybe hit that really quickly. Yeah, let's go through so, it. So here's some of the things that I wrote down. All right. Yep. So we have cutscenes, mm-hmm. uh, shown most famously in Final Fantasy VII. Uh, but there are also basically cutscenes in like Final Fantasy, what, six, right? Where yeah. like the opera scene and that kind of thing? I'm, I would actually say the opera scene is like the first really big, really important cutscene in jrpgs right like there'd been really? cutscenes and stuff before them but that's like the that's the one that kind of sets like the gold standard for what a cutscene in a jrpg is what about you spoonie bard i think the oh man you spoonie <laughs> bard is a really good one but i think that or when spoiler alert he dies oh yeah those were actually the two i was thinking of was um the dark elf segment too of final fantasy four like that and one's also, also really good dragon quest five came out before final fantasy six and oh, i would argue yeah. it has a better story yeah dragon quest five has a great story i don't think i can't remember any cutscenes from it off the top of my head but like rp jrpgs especially love cutscenes and especially square enix because <laughs> they do it better than anybody aside from maybe blizzard yeah, so there, I mean, like, that's the big thing, too, about a static story, right? Like, there's so many, only so many times you can watch a text box or listen to a voice actor without there being something happening on screen that engages you. And it's it's that element of JRPGs that have made them, like, certainly post-Final Fantasy VII, like, they're the big blockbuster movies of the gaming world in a lot of ways. And the millionth reason I like Final Fantasy VIII, I love its cutscenes. Oh god, the cutscenes in Final Fantasy VIII are so good. They are glorious. They're in, put together in interesting ways. Like especially the, especially the cutscene that plays as well. It's not really a cutscene. It's like a gameplay sequence. But that yeah. entire sequence when you're going through time to Ultimicia's castle is amazing. And also the sequence where. Um... Garden is getting assaulted and it's also lift taking off from the ground. Oh and yeah. That. And you're like, I would love, Oh my God. The moment when you're running through an area and in the background, they have the CG battles going on. Yep. That's and exactly the one that I'm thinking of. It's crazy. How good that, how good that, that was looks so good in 1999. <laughs> yep. I, well, I played that game for the first time last year and really? like, it was crazy good even then. Yeah. All right. So some more tools for storytelling in RPGs. A story told over a long period of time. See Dragon Quest V because it kind of gives it an epic sense of scale and you can watch the characters grow up over time and everything. Uh, case in point, Dragon Quest V has already said you start out as a little kid. Yep. And then you grow up and then you marry. Uh, you can choose your wife, by the way. And then when you choose your wife, um, you have kids and your whole family comes together and that becomes your party, um, along with your pet, <laughs> yeah. which is like a saber tooth tiger or something. Yeah, it's super cool. And the, you know, like the fantasy star three approach, which is mm. lesser taken. And then there's kind of the flip side of a long period of time where it's a story that is repeatedly told over the same period of time, but each time it's a little different or a little more in depth. Um, like dragon quarter is maybe the gold standard for that. Mm hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, 
one example of a game that didn't do it super well, Dragon Age 2. Yep. <laughs> one reason, and I, I've bagged on Dragon Age 2 a lot in this podcast, but one of the reasons was just that it didn't change enough. Like, the setting and the characters did not change enough over the course of a decade. Yeah. Well, also, there's that whole thing where there's some games, especially more recent games, that do, like, a long period of time lapses where the world at the beginning of the time lapse is exactly identical to the world at the end of the time lapse. Like, that's really frustrating. The Dragon Quest V worked because it was a coming-of-age story that was told over the course of, like, 20 years. Right. And it made the battle against the main enemy feel that much, you know, weightier because it became, like, a family history kind of thing. Yeah, and, well, and some game series take advantage of that kind of thing, too, right? Like, the Fantasy Star series, excepting Fantasy Star 3, is... It's a series of games told over this over a span of really long span of time in the same world against the same primary foe. So like by the time you reach Fantasy Star 4, like that game is incredible and there's a ton of weight to that game's story if you were really invested in Fantasy Star 1 and Fantasy Star 2. All right, continuing on with some more tools. Um some of these we've already touched on at various points of the podcast. A good evil scale Dialogue choice. Uh, you know, just like being able to choose your answers. And especially in like Fallout, if you get high enough charisma, you can unlock, unlock more answers. Yeah. Uh, side quests with multiple outcomes. Um, as we already discussed, cause like you can, uh, impact the world on a micro level. Uh, just your character customization. You're talking about how, you could create a character who's like a psychopath, um, runs around with a bag on their head and no clothes, and uh, just kills everybody. Uh, but unfortunately, the game doesn't support that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it supports it up to a point. And you can have lots of fun doing that. But, you know, sooner or later, you got to play it. You have to play it the way it was meant to be played. Well, here's the thing. If you're actually a psychopath with a bag on their head who runs around with no clothes and, an a-, and a hatchet, there isn't any future in that. There is no story to that. You either run around and you kill literally everybody in the world, or you die. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but my final experience with Skyrim was, I'm going to turn into a werewolf and I'm going to kill everyone. (laughs) And, like, that was fun. That was a fun story to play out in Skyrim. There you go, right? Um, Multiple endings. Um, There's some games, like, where you choose the faction that you want to support, and that has a heavy impact on... How the game finishes up. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, like, we didn't even really get to talk about Undertale. And I know that's one of the things that's, that inspired you to have this conversation. Mm. There's also the multiple endings where it's multiple different, radically different paths lead to multiple endings, which have, like, no story overlap, almost. And that, and sort of, you get the complete story of the game by going through these multiple paths and multiple endings, which is, like, that's a, I can't think of any game that does that other than Undertale. Maybe Chrono Trigger to an extent? But, like, yeah, that's a really kind of cool, inventive way to make a short game into a longer game. Oh, it also Dragon, makes... Dragon Quarter does it too. <laughs> and Undertale, of course, uses its, like, actual mechanics, like, the mechanics of the game, like saving and loading, uh, yep. and it has a memory which also impacts the narrative yeah. and well, forwards the story. Whether that's the narrative of the game or the meta narrative of playing the game gets a little fuzzy, and that's one of the things that I kind of don't like about Undertale. But that's mm. 
Like, I mean, that could be its own entire podcast, us discussing the weird-ass meta story of Undertale. Well, yeah, um, and maybe when I actually finish that game, um, I will revisit it for the podcast, even though I don't really think it's an RPG. Oh, but man, I, I would, digress. I would love to have that conversation with you. Well, it's a deconstruction <laughs> of an RPG. It's an adventure game that uses RPG elements to tell an interesting story and kind of deconstruct the genre. Mm. But uh, moving on, do you, yeah. do you any other interesting tools for storytelling in RPGs that you can think of? Oh, I'm trying to think of off the, off the top of my head. I've played so many RPGs over my life. Yeah. Um, I think that we've kind of covered the biggest ones. Mm. And... I'm trying to think of like the other storytelling mechanisms. I think of the one thing is like sometimes mini games, depending on the RPG, like Final Fantasy VII is the most egregious one there where the mini games are actively, actively fight against the story. Um, there's like other games where that's worked out okay. Um, I guess we forgot kind of what Bloodborne and say Darkest Dungeon do, which is to tell the story through a narrator. Uh, yeah, who just or, like makes like random little snippets over the the menu yeah, or the like Souls, loading screens. The Souls games are really good at that, where it's all environmental storytelling essentially. Like, mm. I mean, you're kind of given the word go, and then do you want to learn more about the world? Then great, you're going to check out these item descriptions, or you're going to notice this environment factor. Um, that's something you see less in RPGs, like even really huge open world scope ones, like. Uh, people have talked about in Fallout 4, like, oh man, I find, you know, these teddy bears in a crazy position in the toilet or whatever. And that's, that's sort of the same level of environmental storytelling. It's just not quite as expertly done. Um, but I think it's, I think it's interesting that that kind of stuff is showing up more and more often in, in games that even have explicit narratives like Fallout 4. I forgot one thing and something that Bioware loves the Codex. Oh, yeah. The the supplementary material that you can just kind of chill out and read for a few hours. Back in the day, that would have been like a manual that would have come with the game, and it would have been like thick, like really huge. Yep. <laughs> um, this isn't an RPG, but Blizzard games used to ship with a manual that was about as thick as your average RPG source book. Yep. And you. There were games that would ship with novellas. Like, I think it was the Fallout manual is actually, like, written in the style of this is a manual given to the Vault Dweller before they leave. And full-on maps and that kind of thing. Oh, it was so good. Now you kind of get that stuff in um, special editions, but not really. Yeah, you, well, like, sometimes you get it in special editions, and there are certain Kickstarters that kind of have, like, that sort of a level, tier of backing which is pretty cool for the people who want that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm sure that our audience can tell us some more tools for storytelling in RPGs. I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on that. But let's kind of finish up a bit with favorite RPG stories. Yeah. Which I think that a lot of people are going to immediately have opinions. And in fact, I asked their opinion on Twitter and we're going to get to it in a little bit. So here are some of the stories that I wrote down, all right? Okay. Knights of the Old Republic. Mm-hmm. Because I love the fact that you are essentially, what's the official term? The the imperfect protagonist or the um, where unreliable... Unreliable narrator. 
Yeah, because you don't know like who you are essentially. Like the game is the 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 big twist is revealed to the the main character at the same time as you are. Um and, and it's great and it's and it's set up beautifully throughout the game. Um, and it's augmented by a fantastic cast. It's one of the best story, Star Wars stories around, and there's a reason that it has such a legion of fans. Yeah, Kodor is super good. And it's more than that, it's like a super good Star Wars story from a time when, when did Kodor come out? Like mid 90s, late 90s? 2003. Holy crap! On the Xbox. Yeah, that is uh, well past the sell-by date for good Star Wars Extended Universe stories, too. So that that makes it even more shocking. And it also goes a long way to explaining why it's so well-beloved. And the heart of the prequel era. So that was one of the Star Wars stories that everybody clinged onto. Because they were like, oh god, all, I, I can't stand the movies, but at least I got this. Alright, continuing. Other favorite RPG stories. The world ends with you, yep. which I think not only you, you were talking about how some of the best RPG stories are the ones where the narrative and the systems are in alignment. Yeah, world ends with you is like a perfect example of that. Yeah, I think the thing that I really enjoyed about that game is, I mean, as you play through the game, there are three weeks to the story and each week you have a different helper mm-hmm. and you learn more and more about your companion and as you become closer and closer to the companion, you unlock more and more abilities until by the end you feel like really comfortable with them and then they're ripped away and you start with a new person and you're like, who is this person? Like you're kind of slowly figuring out how to use them and it just works so well. And y- you really, like people complain about the main character being kind of a, a jerk, a disaffected jerk. But I think that really, like, has some weight now because, I mean, with social media and all, and, you know, just the nature of how we consume everything. And, God, not to sound like I was born in the 1930s or something, but people walk around with headphones on all the time, right? They're in their own universe. And the main character was definitely in his own universe. And he was learning how to embrace other people besides himself. Yeah, well, and I mean, this goes to another point about RPG stories, specifically RPG stories that people tend to not like. Um, and Final Fantasy VIII is actually another great example of this, where the protagonist is kind of a jerk, and you're not <laughs> supposed to like them. And that's very hard in an RPG, because like this is the character that you are supposed to play as, and in a way, like identify with as your avatar in the world. Yeah, Squall. <laughs> Squall. Hey, I will. I would actually totally hold up Final Fantasy VIII as a good RPG story. Like, and, and more than that, a good RPG narrative. Like the way that the twists are revealed in that story, it's always surprising and weird and kind of fun. We should totally have uh, what was it a seventeenth anniversary discussion of Final Fantasy VIII just for oh, the heck of it? I would love that. I'm <laughs> such a I am such a Final Fantasy VIII apologist, and I think a big part of that is that I came to it so late. Jeremy and I have uh, apologized for Final Fantasy VIII many times on this show. <laughs> All right, continuing. Uh, I really like the story of Earth of Dragon. Sorry, Dragon Quest V. Dragon Quest V, uh, for a lot of the reasons that I outlined. And I didn't put it on this list, but I am a huge fan of Persona 4's story. Oh, yeah. Persona 4 was actually the one that I was going to bring up. Um, and I know, like, for some people, they're like, oh, Persona 3 is where it's at. And I think it's really a matter of preference of what mm. you want. Like, I, I think really, they're both good on their own merits. They are both super good. 
But for me, what really hits me with Persona 4 is that I think the villain is better. And I also really got into like the whole Scooby-Doo mystery aspect of it. And it's like both of those games are good. And well, I'm watching. Did I mention that I'm watching Buffy? You did mention that you're watching Persona Buffy. Persona is so Buffy. <laughs> Persona is super Buffy. Like that could be an entire season of Buffy right there. Where yeah. they're all like facing their individual shadows. Just imagine Willow facing her shadow and Xander facing his shadow. And then by the end, you find out who the serial killer is. Yeah, and it's really good. The way that the story is told is great. And then there's the whole like social link aspect of it. And I, I think even the just the SMT games in general tend to have pretty good narratives. Like not all of them are really stellar not all of them have the most amazing stories in the world, but they all tend to be fairly, fairly solid. Um, like, which one was the one that I was re- actually, oh yeah, uh, Devil Survivor. I've talked mm. before with you in the past. Devil Survivor was a good one. About how Devil Survivor's really intense, like driving time limit and, and narrative, like really work in its favor. And it's one of those games where it has the multiple ending thing going to, that makes it worth coming back to multiple times because mm-hmm. each ending in the, in that game is so different, like radically different in the ways that a lot of other SMT games endings are. So what are some of your favorite RPG stories, Steve? Oh man. The ones that I keep coming back to, like I really love Chrono Trigger a lot. And I mean, mm-hmm. a big part of that is some of these, some of these stories are, like affection or nostalgia from childhood. Like I really love Chrono Trigger. I really love Final Fantasy VI. Um, I really enjoy Fallout's story, actually. And it's for some of these games, it's a little interesting. Where it's I don't necessarily get into the overarching story, but I really get into the world and the fiction of it and playing a character in that world. And like that's that's like totally the sweet spot in Fallout One for me is. It's a cool world to inhabit as the character that I created for it. That's um, part of the reason that I was getting into Mass Effect was that it I became invested in the character and the setting and the cast. And it was a delight to see some of my favorite characters again. And it just did such a great job of building up the infrastructure of the story that I became super invested in it. Uh, disappointing ending be damned. Yeah. Um, Earthbound, which we talked about a little bit. Like, I think the, I think Earthbound has a really good story behind it because it's, it's also the sort of story that a lot of RPGs kind of want to hint at, but never really fully commit to, which is about, like, the, the purity and tenacity of the human spirit and being good to each other and defeating evil. And Undertale, like, has a similar narrative, um, except it's made it way more explicit through the mechanics and, how unrelentingly nasty that game is to you if you choose to be evil. Yes. Um, no, like that, that kind of stuff is really great. I love those things. Um, I love Dragon Quarters story. I mentioned that game a couple of times. That's yes, a, you'd have. That's a game that I enjoy more for its mechanics, but the story of it is also really cool and good. That's another game where it's like kind of, it's unique for an authored game because it's a world that I love inhabiting. Not necess- like even as just those scripted characters who are all kind of a little bit thin, even though over time as you play through the game over and over, you learn more details about them. Um, 
What else is a really good story? I got one for you. Since okay. we've already talked about SMT a little bit. Yep. I think Strange Journey has a great story. Oh, Strange Journey actually does have a really good story. Because though. Strange Journey, like, first of all, the setting is awesome. Where you're, like, going into that crazy crater and everything. Yeah. I want to say that there is a, a strong Lovecraftian component to it. Yeah, there's a really... I think that, honestly, I would hold up Strange Journey above, like, SMT4 or Nocturne mm. or games like that as... I would definitely the, hold it up above SMT4. Yeah, as kind of like the gold standard of the dungeon crawl, latter-day dungeon crawl SMT Because games. there's a strong central mystery to Strange Journey. What the heck is this freaking crater all about? Yeah, I And what I- are all these, like, like crazy, like... Like levels going on, like you go down to another level and suddenly like you're in a shopping mall. (laughs) Who are these monsters? Who are these demons? And then like, and then of course the impact that it starts to have on your crew, uh, like there's a strong psychological horror aspect to it too. It's, it's a really great story. I gotta say. Yeah. I've, I've noticed like talking about this, one of the things that we're coming up with that's common to a lot of these really great RPG stories is that they have some element of mystery to them. Uh huh. Like, um, even Final Fantasy VI has kind of that initial mystery of who is this girl and why does she have these magic powers, even though it's resolved pretty quickly. Um, well, a great mystery can sustain a long story, which is why we watched Lost for so long, for heaven's uh, sake. We want to know what was going on with that stupid island. It's why I'm still excited for the new season of Twin Peaks, even though I know that it'll probably be bad. And it was and X Files, like X Files, sustained itself entirely on BS mystery. Yeah, but like a good example of mystery, and this is not an RPG, but XCOM Two, where early on you start seeing a countdown to something called the Avatar Project, and if you played the original game to completion, you maybe have a pretty decent idea of what maybe an Avatar Project might entail. But at the same time, you're like, what is going on here? And what are the aliens doing with these humans? What are their plans? And that mystery really does a fantastic job of sustaining the story as well. It gives it a momentum. You want a great mystery just makes you want to find out what happens at the end. It's like Persona 4. It's like, who's the murderer? I gotta know. Yeah. And actually, that's another good point is that, especially since I brought up, um, brought up Devil Survivor is that it's not just mystery, but also a lot of these stories have really good momentum. Mm. Like they have a really good understanding of that tension and release kind of thing. Um, and that's something too about like, you know, Darkest Dungeon we've talked about a little bit that I think one of the really great things about that game is that it has that awesome mechanically built in tension and release thing, which is sort of supplemented and emphasized by the narrator character. And that's that's one of the reasons why I think that it's so compelling to play and kind of get these micro stories out of, even though if the moment-to-moment narrative stuff that you come up with individually doesn't tend to be that great. I think having a strong cast also matters a lot. Like, having a rich cast with strong motivations, uh, backgrounds that you can relate to, who grow... And have good design. And I think Persona 4 is like one of the gold standards for that. Persona 4, Final Fantasy 6 is also a really good gold standard for that. Like that's a game with a story that's not incredible, but all the characters in it have really good narrative arcs. And Final Uh, Fantasy 9 too. Yeah, Final Fantasy 9 is a game that gets maligned a lot. And it is definitely my least favorite of the kind of that era. (laughs) 
That's funny because I only see people who are like have a cultish love for that game, and yeah. I totally respect that. Uh, but nine, it has a great, it has a a great cast. It has maybe the single best character of any of the mainline Final oh, Fantasy games. It has Vivi. Vivi. Yeah, it has yeah, Vivi. He was great. Awesome. He's so good. So and- having a strong central mystery and having a great cast, uh, like those two things alone can do so much for your story. Yeah, and especially for those games, I don't, I also noticed that a lot of these games that we talked about, like these are the games that tend to be on the focused authored narrative end of the experience where we, mm. rem- these are the stories that we remember because these are the stories that are well authored with good characters and neat reveals and cool moments. Just like any other really good authored experience, like any good book or good movie. I was going to say, this is kind of storytelling 101. Well, to have a good story, you need good characters. <laughs> right. But, but, uh, but look at Harry Potter, right? Yeah. Why does Harry Potter resonate? Because it has such a deep, deep cast of characters. Uh, even the background characters, to some extent, like you remember them, like Seamus Finnegan and Dean Thomas and like they pop up and Harry Potter gives pretty much everybody who reads it somebody to identify with, right? Like there are people who will identify with Ron or Hermione or maybe Dean or I don't know, some random person in Slytherin or something like that. Like it, it does a good, there is a bit of um reader insert, I guess, but it, a good story can make you invested in even like sub characters yeah well also to the point of reader insert right like Mm -hmm. that is literally a thing that you need to have in a video game because Mm -hmm. you are literally inserting the player as a character into an rpg you know like that it's right there in the title you are playing a role all right so let's move on to twitter um and wrap this thing up uh so i asked the people what is your favorite rpg story and here are some of the responses. Um, this is, I got this multiple times, by the way. Positronic Brain says, Xenogears, flawed and busy, but I'm a soc- sucker for love stories. Two lovers reincarnating for thousands of years? Yes, please. Oh, man, Xenogears is such an interesting one because I still hate that game so much, but there's no denying its ambition and scope in trying to tell that really almost majestic sort of story and i admire it even if i don't like it i can't deny its ambition yeah there's that is the one thing about that game that you cannot deny is that it is so it was so ambitious they literally could not complete it (laughs) exactly (laughs) at rascally badger says uh he wrote like basically a novel across four different tweets but (laughs) it falls apart spectacularly but the opening hours of chrono cross tell a great story Right up until just after Viper Manor. The whole thing feels very dreamlike to start, with Surge waking up in a world that is not quite the same as the one he left. CC's opening has probably my favorite take on the alternate reality trope. Too bad it all becomes so scattered after that. I guess it goes too far off the rails to be my fave, but it ended af- if it ended after Viper Manor with Surge waking up on the beach, it would. Yeah, Chrono Cross is a good one. Like, that's a game that goes totally off the rails in a bad way like almost Mm -hmm. at exactly the point that he's talking about but yeah up to that point it's it's got a good compelling mystery to it like i mean like we were just talking about like that's a good store motivating story that's fun to play through 
and then it just kind of craps all over itself. (laughs) (laughs) At the Smartest Moron writes, SMT Nocturne when it centers on the main hero's issues of his very friends turning against him. But only the neutral route is the one I like, as it shows the best of the hero's humanity as he makes probably the hardest choice. Let's face it, if he let those emotions rule him and sided with a certain demon, that's just another way, easy way out. I think that's, a, that's an interesting one because, it again, it points to that kind of conversation we had a little bit about in those authored experiences where you kind of have the multiple choices or the ending options. Like, there's definitely one that the people making the game want you to have, and they kind of nudge you towards it. And if there is one flaw that all of those SMT games have, it's that the neutral path, the hardest path to go through, is always the quote-unquote good ending in those. At the Royal We, or sorry, at Royal We says, Suikoden 3, interweaving stories with three charismatic leads. I liked the villain reveal. Love the Suikoden mythos. Uh, I like Suikoden 2 better. (laughs) Yeah, I'm honestly shocked that Suikoden 3 came up before Suikoden or Suikoden 2. Yeah, I mean, Suikoden 2, you, you talk about being able to integrate a large cast into a story expertly. I mean, that's the gold standard right there, right? Yeah, I mean, gigantic it's, cast. It's 108 characters, and there is something cool or interesting about every single one of them, and every person who plays it is going to have a different set of favorites. At Mexcellent Jr. <laughs> says, Mir is my favorite. I love how the extra endings fleshed out the enemy's motivations. So Nier is... I've never played it, but I know that that game got, like, really slagged on when it first came out, and it's kind of had this huge cult following in the years since. Yeah, I got killed by reviewers. Um, And if anything, that shows the inherent flaw of game criticism, because a lot of these reviewers came in and were like, "Uh, what's this, some crappy JRPG? (laughs) Meh. And then they played it, and they were like, what is this stupid fishing game? Like, I remember this one review was just obsessed with the fishing game. <laughs> and they were just like, meh, and threw it away. And then when people came and started, like, actually, you know, engaging with it on its own terms, rather than trying to force expectations upon it, they came away and went, oh, this is a good game. This is an interesting game. Yeah, it's something that... um it is on that list of things that I would like to play when I get the time to. Like, it's enough people have recommended it to me at this point that I f- think that it would almost certainly be worth playing. And the creator of that series is interesting just because he's a he seems to be a nihilist. My understanding is that Nier is a very nihilistic game. <laughs> that and uh, the other one, I forget what it's called, but it always has characters who just kill because they're horrible people and the universe doesn't matter. And everybody dies. The end. <laughs> He's the... Yep. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> All right. At Andrew Ryan, 1984, Final Fantasy Tactics keeps the story of sweeping war and intrigue grounded in the lives of friends. Ditto for Tactics Ogre. I think both of those stories are really good. Yeah. Both of those stories are super good. Um, and I will say that Final Fantasy Tactics' story is so strong that it even comes through reasonably well and is pretty compelling in that initial translation on the playstation yes the one that made no friggin sense right which considering how horrible that translation is is a monumental feat (laughs) yes (laughs) all right last one and i can't believe i forgot this one at high linnell sorry 
Valkyrie Profile is at the top of my list. <laughs> Cat, how did you forget Valkyrie Profile? The protagonist, Leneth, goes through a very strong arc that sees her, and then he didn't finish the tweet at me. Uh, so I assume that he continues going, oh, here we go. Uh, goes through a very strong arc that sees her grow, learning from some tragic mistakes and horrible betrayals, and she's rewarded well upon redeeming herself in the end. The story shares a lot of parallels with Lightning Returns, which is another of my favorites for similar reasons. Yeah, so I'm going to say about Valkyrie Profile, I totally agree. The story in that game is really fantastic. And even though it can move a little slowly, um, it's, uh, it's the first hour of that game is all story and it's infamously kind of slow. Uh, I love, first of all, I love that you see how each of you, the characters that come into your party die. Yeah. Uh, it really adds a lot of context to it. I, I love the way that the the story, the the overarching story that's happening in heaven uh, runs parallel with the story that's happening on the ground. One of my favorite things about Valkyrie Profile is that there's a party of adventurers that you see, that you check on in on from time to time. And then one by one, they die. And like, like they die in various ways. Like one of them gets turned to stone. Another one gets like stabbed, like on and on and on. Right. Until there's this one girl left and you expect that she's going to join your party too. No, she's just all alone and sad. <laughs> right. I do really like my Valkyrie profile experience was not unfortunately as cool as yours because um, I bought it used and there was a scratch like oh, that prevented no. me from playing more than four hours into the first disc. But <laughs> like that is that's another game that I really want to go through at some point because it's not only are the mechanics super cool but I really liked what I saw of the story and also I just love the whole idea of this is an RPG about Ragnarok where the good ending is the world is completely destroyed <laughs> and reborn and reborn I mean it is we we talked about at the very beginning how the best stories are the games where the mechanics are in alignment with the narrative and that is a great example yeah. where you are supposed the game casts you as a essentially a robot carrying out mechanically carrying out the will of Odin and if you just do your job you will get the okay ending and you'll be put back to sleep the end it's a game that go makes you question surroundings, makes you question the very nature of the game. Like, it makes you question what you're supposed to be doing in this game and expects you to go off the beaten path. And people are like, oh, well, uh, you can't really discover it unless you have a guide. And there's, like, all these opaque systems. Well, okay, fine. But part of the magic of Valkyrie Profile is discovering how you're supposed to go about that and making the realization of what it wants from you. Yeah, I think Valkyrie uh, Profile is a phenomenal game. Yeah, it is. And that, so that we didn't talk about this when we were talking about like the Bethesda approach to kind of how narratives work, but we forgot to mention the element of surprise and delight. Ooh, that's, yeah. that's like, that comes as part of that storytelling of not just I did this thing in the game, but also I found this cool place in the game. Mm, which is Final Fantasy VII has so much of that. Yeah, which is something that's, you, that's common to like kind of all of these, ex in like except for the ones that are fully procedurally generated, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's this, there's this cool thing in the world that is an authored thing that either I can choose to find or I am guaranteed to find, and that is a nice thing to talk to other people about. Like that, those can be really powerful, interesting moments, um, even if they're not directly related to the story, even if you don't always find them. 
I agree. All right. We're now 90 minutes into this podcast. So I'm going to wrap up with the final question. Is a good story an integral part of a good RPG? Is it possible to have a good RPG without a good story? And is it possible to have a good story? Or is it possible for an RPG to be good strictly on the merits of its story? I'm going to say yes, because there are some pretty mechanically limp Final Fantasy games that are still lots of fun to play because they have good stories. Um, like Final like, Fantasy IV. I was actually just going to say like but Final Fantasy IV. here's the thing. Final Fantasy IV has really limp customization, but it is so balanced. And it is so... Like, the individual battles play out like puzzles, and they're fun to play. And, like, the care, the, the battle system itself... The combat itself is tuned within an inch of its life. Right. And it's, but more to the point, it's balanced in a very specific way that it's balanced so that it's never too difficult, but it still feels good to make it through it. So that you kind of get that narrative thrust of, I am beating these bosses. I am constantly making progress towards the end. It's like, that's, that is a game where the mechanics tie into the narrative, but in a really different way. Because it's it feels like an adventure. I'm going to say that a an RPG has to have some pretty special mechanics to be able to make up for not having a good story. Yep, 100%. And I think, I think Darkest Dungeon is like a really good case in point. Having said that, I think a game with phenomenal mechanics can actually be dragged down a lot by a bad story. Because if you just find the... Uh, the narrative really annoying and the characters super grinding and you just don't want to be with these people. You can, like, great systems be damned. You're not going to play it. Yeah, what was that game? It, I think it was a 360 game, which was, like, anime Mozart. The oh, RPG. Eternal Sonata. Yeah, that game. That game <laughs> has some really cool mechanics and a nice battle system, but and it's Jesus pretty. Christ, is it horrible to play through because the story is so bad. Grandia 3 is another example. Oh my god, I love the battle system in that game. It's so much fun. Hate the characters. Yep. Can't stand the actual story. Yeah, I, I think that a great story can make up for bad mechanics, and great mechanics can supplement like kind of the vacuum of a story, but they can't make up for a bad story. Because again, we're talking about a game that's especially if it's an authored narrative experience, like, you know, Eternal Sonata is meant to be, if you're sitting through that poorly authored experience for 60 hours, no matter how fun it is, you're going to want to do something else. I, I'm sorry to say, like, I spoke I spoke fairly highly of The World Ends With You earlier, and I even said that I like how the mechanics fit in with the story, but I actually think the mechanics in The World Ends With You is pretty bad. Oh, yeah, the, the two-screen thing? Yeah. I, like the I whole like two screen it's... thing and like the swiping on your touch screen all the time. Yeah, that's not a good battle system. Yeah, I like how they even acknowledged that it was so bad by giving you the option to not do half of it. Yeah, exactly. But, but at the same time, like the actual story and the art and the setting all make up for it in a big way. Yep. So you can tolerate that aspect of the game in favor of everything else. Yeah, and that's actually a kind of a good way to put it. Like, if if the story is compelling enough, you will tolerate the occasional uh, interruptions of bad mechanics because you want to see what happens next so badly. 
Whereas, you know, the other way around, you if you play through the those awesome battles to get to a bad story, like, who cares, right? Like, it's how, um, especially in the 90s, cutscenes are the reward. And that's yeah, that's never true in any genre more than in RPGs. <laughs> Indeed. Well, whew, I uh, I think we did it. Yeah, we did it. It's long. <laughs> it's ninety minutes. We spent ninety minutes talking about RPG stories, but I I think yeah, I I feel like this is a a topic, believe it or not, that bears even more exploration i mean god as i already said that we we could spend a whole podcast just talking about the way bioware approaches its storytelling Uh, narrative and rpgs it's just so interesting because of the way of the agency that you get over it i was reading an old article by chuck Klosterman a decade ago where he was wondering at the lack of a a real critic in games Uh and he was saying that the thing that he found most interesting about the games was the agency that you get in the ability to change the story and that a really good critic should be able to delve into that. So I guess we just did it. I guess yeah. for the Lester Bangs of game criticism. Oh man, we finally <laughs> found it and it's Woo! us. <laughs> <laughs> but no, what's interesting is that I got a, a copy of, um, uh, well, I'm going to be having a copy of Fire Emblem Fates coming in pretty soon. Uh, it's coming out in a couple weeks. And that's a really interesting story. Yeah, I'm, well, we didn't even mention any of the Fire Emblem games, but they actually tend to have, like, passable, if not exactly good stories. Pretty bog-standard stories, but this one's just interesting because it splits into two differing games. And not only does the story path divert you into two different games, one game is totally different from the other. Which is honestly a little aggravating because you have to buy two games to experience the full story. Or the special edition. <laughs> or the special edition, which is probably what I will be buying. <laughs> which everybody um, should buy, frankly, because the box art is awesome. It does have some awesome box art. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think about the game because I enjoyed the pre the last Fire Emblem a lot. I'm trying to remember what it was called. The one that um, came out three years ago for the DS. Awakening. Awakening, yes, that one. I really enjoyed that a bunch. That came out the same month as uh, Bravely Default, didn't it? Yes. When does, oh. Brave, when does Bravely Second come out? Oh, Bravely Default, a case in point of a game where I really enjoyed the mechanics and could not bear the story. Oh, God, yeah. I know plenty of people who gave up on Bravely Default, like, roughly halfway through, which was the correct decision for them to make. But I, uh, Bravely Second, I'm looking forward to giving it another chance. Bravely Second looks a little more interesting from what I've seen. I'm actually kind of enthused for that one. Anyway, I am also excited to hear my thoughts on Fire Emblem Fates, because I don't have them yet. (laughs) That makes you even more excited to hear them than me, because you will be playing the game soon. Exactly. In any case, um, I don't know when the embargo for Fire Emblem Fates is up, but there is a non-zero chance that I will be talking about it next week. If not, we'll talk about it the week after, and we will all find something else to talk about. God knows, there is so much more to talk about in RPGs, the storytelling and the battle systems and the mechanics. Like, well, what a great genre. Steve, what are you going to be doing over the... I don't know, plug something. 
plug something. Oh man. Okay. Uh, I'm probably going to be starting, uh, some writing again soon at my website, generic domain dot name, uh, which is the greatest domain name of all time. Of course, probably going to do a little bit of writing about, um, some games that I played last year in the upcoming weeks and maybe a little bit about my day job professional life and my thoughts on that, <laughs> which I'm sure that you listeners do not care about at all, but you might get to read them anyway. Exactly. And if they want to hear more thoughts about video games and whatever else you have to say, where can they find you? They can find me on the Twitter at a tweeting twit. Excellent. Well, send Steve and myself your thoughts on RPG narrative. I want to know what your favorite stories are. And if we missed any like storytelling tools that you find of interest. And also like if you have kind of a direction that we would like want us to further explore i'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are because it always helps to know what people want us to talk about but in any case you can reach me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net uh conversely find, follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot us gamers social media accounts are at all the usual places youtube facebook and all that just look for for US Gamer or US Gamer Net. Uh, we started streaming again on Twitch, which is kind of awesome. Um, on Wednesdays, we're going to be doing community hangouts. Um, and Jeremy is actually planning on doing an anniversary stream of Zelda, the original Legend of Zelda, in which he tries to beat it. Oh, cool. Has Jeremy ever beat Legend of Zelda? Uh, I think he probably has, knowing Jeremy. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, you got to ask, because if it's a stream where Jeremy says, I've never beat this game, and I'm going to do it for the first time, that would actually make it kind of more fun. Uh, if that's the case, then good luck to him, because I beat Legend of Zelda for the first time like a week ago. Yep, I have never beat that game because it is super hard. It is way harder than it looks. You're like, oh, I can totally take this. And then by the time you get to like the seventh dungeon, you're like, what have I gotten myself into? I know. I think I made it up through dungeon five or six or something a few years back. And that's the farthest I've ever been able to get in that game. I had a friend, luckily, to help me out. So I was able to get through it. But woo. Uh, a friend who managed to beat it without a sword. What? Right. He did the no sword run. I was like. I bow to you. God, that's <laughs> he's been... crazy. Is that he? How is that even possible? Oh, it's possible. Wow, it is wow. possible. Like he was, and he was like going, "Okay, go here and get this and this and this." Like he knew where every heart container was by heart and everything. It was crazy. But uh, shout out to Jim for helping me out with that. I really appreciate it. In any case, if you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and all of your favorite places where podcasts can be found. And in any case, uh, thanks, Steve, for coming on the show. And we'll have you again real soon uh, to go in depth on RPG mechanics again, because you're real good for that. Yeah, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I always enjoy talking with you. And until next time, I've been Cat Bailey and happy adventuring. Mm-hmm.